grab a seat. Well, if you're new or visiting, it's good to be with you. My name's Tyler. I lead our downtown congregation. If you have a Bible, um, we're going to be in about 20 different texts today. So I don't really know where to tell you to open. I feel like I'd be disingenuous. Um, We are in the second week of our downtown congregation series, recovering what does it mean to be a people set apart, set apart by God and for God with one another. And so last week we looked at, okay, to be a people set apart means we have a particular posture of worship towards God, one of humility, not self-righteousness. And next week, next Sunday, we're gonna look at work and the vocation God has called you into, and I want you to know God has so much more meaning and purpose for all of your vocations more than you even realize. That's next Sunday. But this Sunday, we're looking at to be a people set apart. What does it mean to seek justice? We're looking at justice this week. And and I wanted to hit the topic of justice for all sorts of reasons. I mean, the, the concept of justice is often invoked in the world and in the church, and I really wanna make sure that you and I define justice according to the scriptures and not to our culture. But even deeper than that, is once you begin to study this topic of justice in the scriptures, you're going to find very quickly that we collectively cannot be faithful to the God who has loved us, the God who has set us apart for himself, if we don't pursue justice. In the Bible, you cannot escape how often God calls his people to himself by calling us to seek and pursue justice. Now, In this room, we are all over the map in our understanding and our prioritizing of justice. Some of you are very familiar, very well trained, very well versed versed in what the Bible has to say about the topic. But for the vast majority of us, what I have found is we have little biblical understanding of justice. Not no understanding of justice as a whole or worldly understanding, but a biblical understanding of the topic. For the most part, we have been trained more by our family of origin, more by our political party, and more by our experience rather than the scriptures when it comes to the topic of justice. Or we've been influenced by one verse in the Bible but have neglected a whole host of others that should inform the way we interpret those texts, or we see justice as having little to do with our relationship with God, and while justice is a good thing for the church, it's not an essential thing for the church. And so others of us in this room, you are brand new to the faith, you haven't read much of the Bible, you haven't thought much about this, not out of sinfulness, but out of just ignorance and not knowing much about the faith yet. So you have all those sort of complexities in this room on this topic, and on top of that, every single one of us in small ways and some in massive ways have been the victims of injustice. All of us have personal experiences of injustice that shapes the way we see the world. And with all those personal experiences, I wanted to say I know that for us, we want the church to speak specifically into the injustice we've gone through so we can know for sure that God cares and our church cares about it. And let me just say this from the very beginning on this topic, that if I don't address a specific issue that you're concerned with, please have patience with me. 
And understand this is just one sermon and the limitations of one sermon. We could go for an hour and a half, but you wouldn't want that either, okay? So have patience with that. And don't assume, because I don't address it, that we don't necessarily care and are not, at least in some ways, trying to engage in that issue. If you have a question, please talk to somebody afterwards. But I will also say that, that for me, so much of this topic and this issue has become very personal for me as one of the pastors of this church. Like, I, like everyone else in this room, I have my own story. I have the ways that I have felt wronged. I have the, way, the sense of injustice I have in my life, like everybody else. But I've also, because I'm one of the pastors of this church, I've sat across from men and women in this room who have suffered and struggled under so many different types of injustice. And this is what your experience will be if you actually love other people. If you love the church and you love your city and you try to love the nations, you will inevitably come into contact with people who are very different than you and who have suffered worse than you and experience injustice that you haven't experienced. Listen, I, I know, I know that I'm preaching to men and women in this room who have suffered abuse. I know I'm preaching to men and women who have experienced racism and prejudice. I know many have been discriminated against based on gender or orientation who have been looked over unfairly, who have been treated poorly because people made assumptions about you based on who they thought you were. And on and on and on could go about the injustices in this room. But not to mention those who aren't in this room. The many who aren't in this room right now who are suffering injustice. Those men and women, and women mostly children, trapped in human trafficking, those stuck in generational poverty, those in the foster care system, those suffering from mental illness and homelessness, those who are right now fleeing their country of origin because any sense of home has been taken away from them, and on and on I could go. For all the difficulty, for all the complexity in the world and in this room, God still calls us, his people, to seek and pursue justice in it. So this sermon will not and should not be the end-all be-all for what it means for us as a church to pursue justice together. Here's my hope. I wanna provide a starting point and a massive framework for us to work and live within. That's my, my goal in this sermon. So I'm gonna give you three aspects of justice, this framework of justice. Here's the three things. It's basis, it's meaning, and it's hope. The basis of justice, the meaning of justice, and the hope of justice, I'm gonna do my, my best not to preach for an hour, okay, we'll see. First, basis of justice, basis of justice. Now, there is plenty of disagreements right now as to what does it mean to carry out justice, but there is not much conversation or argument about whether or not justice as an idea, as a concept, should be pursued and an argument about whether or not it's good or right. All of us, for the most part, our sense is that justice should be a virtue that we should pursue. Most of us have a self-evident sense that it is a good thing when justice happens, and it's a bad thing when it doesn't. It's so intuitive to us that when we see injustice in the world, 
and we see the powerless being crushed, see awful things happening, it's always what? A shock to our faith, isn't it? If you've been a Christian for more than 10 minutes, you've had this struggle. You've seen injustice in the world, and it prompts in all of us this question of going, well, why would a good, all-powerful God not intervene and stop this? Why, you see it in the Psalms. They see injustice, they see the poor being crushed, and they ask the question, God, where are you? If you follow Jesus long enough, you will have to answer that question, pray through that, read through that, but an even deeper question than where is God when it comes to justice is this. Without a good, all-powerful God who is just, why would we believe that such a thing as justice even exists? Why would we even believe if there is no God who, who's all-powerful and good and just, why would we believe that justice even exists? Here's the thing, without the reality of God in your worldview, there is no real basis for seeking justice. Science and technology can't prove to you that justice exists or that it's a worthwhile endeavor. Most of history, if you've studied it at all, most of history would tell you the strong devour the weak. Most of history would tell you the strong devour the weak, and if there is no God, then there is no real consequence. There is no real consequence. There may be human consequences, but ultimately there is no real reason why people should or should not do anything that's evil, because justice is inherently, like other concepts like beauty and love, without God, it's always a faith position. To believe it exists and to pursue it without God in your worldview is just a faith position. You're just believing it because it seems right to you. But as Christians, our basis for justice is God himself. Our basis for it is God himself. The reason we collectively as a people in the church around the world seek justice is ultimately to bring the world God created in line with his character. That's why we do it to bring it in line with who our creator God is. Here's a couple of texts. Deuteronomy 32, four. It says, the rock, a metaphor for, for, for God, the rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. All of his ways are justice. All of his ways in his character is right, good, and true. Psalm 89, 14. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. Justice is the foundation of his throne, his kingdom, his person. They're established and rooted in what? Justice. Psalm 99, 1 through 4. The Lord reigns. Let the peoples tremble. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim. Let the earth quake. The Lord is great in Zion. He is exalted over all the peoples. Let them praise your great and awesome name. Holy is he. How is he holy? The king in his might loves justice. You have established equity. You have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. It's God's character and his activity in the world that is our basis for justice. It's not any human institution. It's not any human government or any collective human consensus. It is rooted in the nature and the character of God who has made us and the world he's created. So since justice is sourced in God, 
then that means that it's his word that defines what justice means. And it implies that every human action, institution, government, and society is only as just as it operates in accord with God and his definition of justice. Because you can't pursue justice if you don't have a standard by which you're measuring everything against. Let me, let me say that again. You can't pursue justice if you don't have a standard by which you measure everything against to know what's good and right. Justice is the act of bringing the world back into order to what is good, and God is the one as our creator who tells us what's good, who tells us what's right, who sets the expectations of what justice means. So the basis of justice is rooted in God himself and his character. Now he's gonna define for us what justice means. Now I, for this sermon, I read a lot this week because there is so much to study on this topic. And I read all these different definitions of justice and I found one that is very, very lengthy, but it's very, very helpful. And I'm gonna give you, this is what I'm gonna give you, just the high level excerpts from this very long definition of justice but I found it to be very, very brilliant and helpful for us to understand what does the Bible say about justice? So I'm gonna read it slow because there's a lot going on, but stay with me. Here's what justice is, it's a theologian named Chad Brand. Here's what justice is. Order that God seeks to reestablish in his creation where all people receive the benefits of life with him. As love is for the New Testament, so justice is the central ethical idea of the Old Testament. Here's the nature of justice. Justice has two major aspects. First is the standard by which penalties are assigned for breaking the obligations of the society. And second, justice is the standard by which the advantages of social life are handed out, including material goods, rights of participation, opportunities, and liberties. It is the standard for both punishment and benefits, and thus can be spoken of as a plumb line. He quotes Isaiah 28, 17, I shall use justice as a plumb line. Last part of this. Justice is also a central demand on all people who bear the name of God. Its claim is so basic that without it, other central demands and provisions of God are not acceptable to God. Justice is required to be present with the sacrificial system Fasting, tithing, obedience to the other commandments, or the presence of the temple of God. Now there is a lot going on in that definition because there's a lot to say about justice and how we seek it as a people. But as I was studying and reading this and learning a lot this week, I wanna give you what I think is a succinct way to remember what is justice according to the scriptures. And here's what it is. Justice is righting wrongs and restoring good. Justice is righting wrongs and restoring good. Now it may seem like those overlap and they do to some extent, but I want you to think about both of those aspects of justice as two sides of the same coin. So righting wrongs has to do with proper consequences, judgment, and grieving to various kinds of evil, sin, and wrongdoing. And restoring good has to do with giving back what was taken or providing what should be theirs to those who can't attain it on their own. It's righting wrongs and it's restoring good. So I wanna give you a definition for each, text for each, and, and some brief applications 
for each. So first, righting wrongs. What does it, what does it mean for justice to say we need to right wrongs? I'll give you three texts. Isaiah 1, 16, that's what God says. He says, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil, learn to do good. Okay, what does that mean? Seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. He says, you wanna be clean, you wanna know me? I'd love for that to happen. I'd love for you to stop doing evil. You know what it means? To correct oppression, to bring justice, to right the wrongs to the fatherless. Later on in Isaiah 58, the people of God are fasting from food and singing songs to God and they're trying to seek him. Here's what he says to them. In Isaiah 58, six, is not this the fast that I, not you choose, that I choose to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, things that weigh people down, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke. And then Jesus, Matthew 23, 25, here's what he says. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe, bent and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. All these texts make it very clear for us that God is not honored when evil, sin, oppression, and abuse are whitewashed and glossed over. It's the command of God to his people to recognize clearly the wrongs and not be lulled to sleep as treating them as anything less than they actually are. We are the people who've been given his spirit. And by his spirit, we can understand and interpret what his word says. And then by his spirit, with the word of God, we can discern the world around us. We can discern the world around us. We can actually be able to begin to discern when the world or people around us call something that's good, evil, and when they call something that's evil, good. And not only doctrinal statements about God, it includes that, but also in the way human beings, image bearers of God, are treated. And it's really important to recognize all those texts I just read to you, God's people, had not been doing that. Every text I just read to you was a rebuke. Every text I just read was a challenge because these were people who wanted to do good. They wanted to seek after God, but they didn't want to pursue justice. They didn't want to do it. They wanted to read their Bibles. They wanted to pray. They wanted to attend worship. They even wanted to tithe but they didn't want to correct and confront the mistreatment of other people and the mistreatment of those who lacked power. And God is being very clear to them and to us. If that's all you want to do, then you don't want me. Then you don't want me. Because he's saying, if you were to seek me, then you would seek justice then you would correct oppression, then you'd break every heavy yoke, and you would not neglect the weightier matters of justice. Now we struggle with this for so many different reasons. I think one reason is all of our tendencies, we want to restrict and confine the authority of God in our lives, so we like to limit him to the spiritual realm, limit him to spiritual matters so he doesn't speak into other matters of our life, we wanna keep ourselves from his authority and his reign, that's part of it. 
But along with this, I think there's a theological issue that we have that we don't know how to reconcile justice with mercy. Justice with forgiveness. We haven't thought very deeply about how does God's call for justice for wrongs done and God's command for forgiveness for wrongs done relate to one another? Sadly, what we've done far too often in an attempt to honor one text of scripture, we completely undermine another. So hear me really clearly. Forgiveness is not opposed to justice. Forgiveness is not opposed to justice. Forgiveness and justice are actually tied together forever in the way that God saved you and me from our sin against him. So here, here's a text, Ephesians 4.32, about forgiveness. It says, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Now, from that text, you can see it right there behind me, it's super clear that we are called to forgive, how? as God in Christ forgave us. So he really forgave us, so we really forgive other people. We should never deny this text in order to obey others. But here's the question, look at the text. As God in Christ forgave you, well how did God forgive you and me in Christ? Did he treat our wrongs against him as if they were no big deal? Did he look at our wrongs and just gloss over them without punishment or consequence? Absolutely not. The cross tells us that the only way for God to forgive us and our wrongs was for him to treat them as awful and evil and heinous as they actually are, and yet somehow show mercy to us. And he did that with Jesus on the cross, suffering for our sins, why? So justice would be done, and then forgiveness would flow from it. That's what the cross is. The cross is God's declaration to all of us that he takes no sin committed against him or image bearers or his creation lightly or casually. No higher price could be paid than the blood of his son to teach us what? How awful every injustice and sin against God and humanity truly is. Justice and forgiveness are not opposed to one another. They're forever wed together in the person and work of Jesus. I was really helped this week, I want you to read uh, this quote with me by Rachel Den Hollander. And if you don't know who she is, she was one of the victims and survivors of sexual abuse at the hands of Larry Nasser. Um, he abused hundreds of young girls who were gymnasts and all, in the, all under the guise and cover of being their physician. And Rachel went through all that, and she's also a Christian. She's been very outspoken about how she's processed through justice and forgiveness. She has gone to the depths of this that I've never had to go to. And so listening to her this week has been really helpful for me and I want you to read this excerpt from her interview in Christianity Today. It says this, what does it mean to you, talking to Rachel, that you forgive Larry Nasser? It means that I trust in God's justice and I release bitterness and anger and a desire for personal vengeance. It does not mean that I minimize or mitigate or excuse what he has done. It does not mean that I pursue justice on earth any less zealously. It simply means that I release personal vengeance against him and I trust God's justice, whether he chooses to met that out purely eternally or both in heaven and on earth. 
She's teaching us what the scriptures teach us. Justice and forgiveness are not opposed to each other. They're wed together. Forgiveness flows from the belief that God brings justice. So what does this mean for us? What does it mean for us as a people to right the wrongs among, start with us. I wanna give you two areas where this has been increasingly personal for me as one of the pastors of this church I thought about of all the different evils that we could talk about in this moment, which one should I address? And honestly, the ones that have been most front page for me in the life of this church have been righting the wrongs for victims in this room of abuse and racism. This is, I'm not saying this because it's a newspaper article or a study or a debate for me. It's people that I have had the opportunity and the privilege to be one of their pastors to walk them through and walk alongside of them as they walk through their Trauma. I'm not going to give you names or faces, but that's who I have in my mind. This is not theory for me. It's people for me. And I want you to know, maybe you're new and you're visiting and this is really heavy for you or you've gone through, you've been the victim of these two things. I want you to know how sorry I am. Sorry, it's not right, and I'm sorry. And what I've noticed is that when it comes particularly to victims of abuse or racism, what I tend to see are, on one side, it's people who tend not to believe in the gospel we believe, but even some Christians who will either downplay or completely ignore what it means to forgive. But on the other side, on the other side, it's mostly Bible-believing Christians with a high view of the scriptures who downplay and completely ignore what it means to have justice because we don't have a category for it. We don't have a conviction as to what it means to right wrongs, so we speed past it towards forgiveness. And forgiveness should be pursued, absolutely, but so should justice. The culprits of wrongdoing should not be left alone in anonymity in the name of grace. That isn't grace. That's injustice. That's evil. And here is where the church needs to grow is victims need advocates. Victims need advocates. In, in the same way, we don't ask people in hospitals to fix themselves, nor should we ask victims to fight for themselves. See, for the people of God, listen, we believe in grace deeper than anybody. We believe in grace deeper than anybody. And we believe in it so deeply and strongly that someone can be loved and forgiven by God as they're on their way to jail for the rest of their lives for what they've done. So instead of telling victims of abuse or racism to just move on because it's in the past, to just move on because it should be no big deal, they should just forgive, we should address the wrongdoing and the wrongdoer. We should call it for what it is. We shouldn't, one of the things we have to learn how to do is mourn with people and lament with people and cry with people and listen to people and give space for those who have been the victim to speak and immediately involve whoever we need to involve to see that biblical faithfulness to justice is done. In some cases that'll mean involving the authorities immediately It'll mean involving the authorities in the church and the community. 
But justice means righting wrongs, calling them what they are. We have so much further to go, and God is with us. But seeking justice, we want to seek God, is righting wrongs. And the other side of the coin, it's restoring good. So seeking justice is righting wrongs, but it's also restoring good. I want to give you three other texts that show you the different aspect of justice. You'll see it for yourself. Deuteronomy 10, 17. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, the awesome God, who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner. Now notice what justice means here, giving him food and clothing. It doesn't mean righting a wrong, it means providing what should be theirs, giving him food and clothing. Verse 19, love the sojourner. Love the sojourner, therefore why? For you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. Justice is providing because there's an expectation of the basis of what should be theirs. Jeremiah 5, 28. He says, they, referring to the people of God, they have grown fat and sleek. They know no bounds and deeds of evil. They judge, listen, not with justice the cause of the fatherless, because they, they, they judge with justice, what would they do? To make it prosper. And they do, they do not defend the rights of the needy. It's restoring good, it's provision. And the famous passage from Jesus himself in Matthew 25, here's what he says. He gives a parable about the last day. He says, Matthew 25, 34, then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you and thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Not just righting wrongs, but provision of what should be. And all these passages are teaching us, it's giving and providing for those who lack what should be, should be theirs as an act of justice. Now first, I wanna point out something. Notice in all those texts, how physical and tangible doing justice for others truly is. Notice what it is. It's giving food, clothing, making people prosper, defending rights, giving water, visiting others in prison. It isn't this private, removed from the world sort of thing. It requires, all those texts require our physical embodied presence among those who are most vulnerable. They all require our presence in the world. Do you remember, do you remember what Jesus taught us to pray? Because God is, listen, he's not downplaying our spiritual endeavors. He's not downplaying Bible reading and prayer and repentance and study. He's merely expanding what it means to be truly spiritual. He's expanding what does it mean to be truly spiritual. Do you remember what he taught us in the Lord's Prayer? He says, you should pray, your kingdom come, your will be done, where? On earth. On earth as it is in heaven. His vision for this people, for us together, for his kingdom, is not that heaven would come down and save us from earth. 
is that earth would be swallowed up and made new by heaven. And on top of that, you have to notice in all those texts I just read to you, who God highlights as needing to have justice sought out for them. The fatherless, the widow, the sojourner, or another word for that, refugee, immigrant, the needy, and the least of these. Now this is very, very important to understand the nuance of what God is saying here if you truly want to seek God. Like hear me really clearly. God cares about justice for all people. He cares about justice for all people. Justice, listen, is not assuming the powerless are always right. Justice is not assuming that those who lack are right no matter what. We should judge without partiality. This is what Leviticus 19.15 says. You shall do no injustice in court. What would be injustice? You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great. It's not an assumption that either one of those camps and categories of people are right, but in righteousness you shall judge your neighbor. So God cares about justice for all people and not being partial to based on who, where you are in society, but over and over and over again, it's the powerless, the fatherless, those on the margins whose rights and fair treatment are most likely to get overlooked. He keeps bringing them up because he knows they're the ones who get most likely overlooked. Listen, I, I've read the Bible a lot. I read it a lot. You guys pay me to read the Bible a lot. That's what I do, right? I read the Bible a lot, and I've read a lot of verses, and I have yet to see a verse where God says, hey, church, listen up. Make sure you take care of the rich. Hey, make sure you really fight for the comfort level of those in the majority culture. Hey, make sure you protect the middle class. Now? Like, uh-oh. It's not in there, I'm just saying. That's why I'm giving you a lot of text today. This is not my opinion. I'm reading you Bible verses. Now, listen, let me, let me clarify. That doesn't mean there are no injustices that happen in those sections of the church or society. That's not what that means. It doesn't mean that God's okay with injustice for people who have money. That's not what that means. It's not okay to assume because someone has money they're inevitably worse than everybody else. That's not okay. Sin cuts across every demographic, every dynamic, every people group. It, cuts, it has no discriminations. It goes against everybody, okay? There are injustices at every level of society, but... What does God keep bringing up again and again and again? The fatherless, the widow, the refugee, the immigrant, those who lack power and status where they are. Want a New Testament example? Fine, James 1.27. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this. Tell us, James, brother of Jesus, to visit orphans. To visit orphans and widows in their affliction and keep oneself unstained from the world. Now, is, Je is, is he saying that other people shouldn't be visited in their affliction? Y'all better, better visit me in my affliction, okay? Like if I'm sad, come visit me, right? He's not saying 
You shouldn't visit all people in affliction, but he's emphasizing, but you know who's gonna get overlooked and have no one to visit them? Orphans. Those who lack power, widows who can't provide for themselves, especially in that day and age, in that society, they're the quickest to be forgotten is those in the margins and the fringes. And it's not only is it God's heart for those people that leads us to them, because I know some of you are among them, but it's also the way God himself associates with the least of these. Well, what did Jesus say in Matthew 25? The language is fascinating. He says, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Do you see how Jesus is associating himself with those on the margins, with those who lack? So you're saying when I give to someone who doesn't lack, it's not okay? No, God is honored by that. But he's saying there's a special sort of honor he gets when we do it to those who lack. Restoring what's good and what's been taken is justice. Because when you visit orphans in their affliction, you are in some ways restoring the good of what they should have a family, but it's been taken from them, so we're restoring it in a way. So for example, let me give you an example of kind of modern day going on right now in our society. And I'm about to step in it, so I need you to stay with me on this, okay? I need you to stay with me. Some of you are gonna be like, I wanna fight you. Just hang on. But this past week, in our culture, the conversation of reparations has been in the news. And the reason it's been in the news is because there's a bill set forth in Congress that wants to commission a committee to study the potential options. If you're unfamiliar with with what reparations are, the potential options of restoring the good that was viciously taken from African slaves and their descendants through the heinous and demonic institution of slavery. Now, without, some of you are already ready to argue with me, okay? Now, before we, without getting into the debate about the topic in particular, okay, or, or how best to accomplish something like that, or whether you agree with it or not, let me just tell you this, from studying this all week, what I would say. Biblical, biblical justice would tell us to listen, would tell us to listen. Because to completely ignore the pervasive and ongoing economic disparity that exists would be rooted more in worldly, pragmatic, political wisdom than it would be in a full and deep understanding of the narrative of the scriptures. We can disagree, we can disagree, about how best to accomplish something of that scope or that magnitude or maybe a whole other conversation about the role of government in the life of the society and how that should be accomplished, okay? But being unwilling to even listen to an attempt to address an evil as sinister and deep and pervasive as slavery and racism would not be grounded in biblical justice. Listen to another part of this definition from Chad Brand. Talking about justice, he says, these legal provisions express a further characteristic of justice. Justice delivers. It does not merely relieve the immediate needs of those in dire straits. Helping the needy means setting them back on their feet, giving a home, leading to prosperity, restoration, ending the oppression. The church cares about all of life from womb to tomb with special attention to the life that is treated as less valuable. We have to care 
but image bearers from womb to the tomb with a special attention to life that is treated as less valuable. We cannot let political affiliations and causes get in the way of protecting and promoting the least of these. So whether the least of these is the unborn baby in the womb and its mother, or if it's the child in foster care, or if it's young black men, or if it's newly arrived immigrants and refugees, or if it's the elderly and infirm, God's word of justice and call to his people is gonna push us to these places and we have to pray and we have to act that our hearts and actions would catch up with his. I'm telling you, to follow the God of the universe means to be challenged. He's not like you or me. And so eventually he's going to challenge all of us and he's gonna say, seek me, I want you to seek me. Seek justice too. That's how you get to me. So church, listen, we're just scratching the surface. We're just scratching the surface, but for the sake of time, we need to move to this last point. Base of justice, meaning of justice. Here's the last thing, we have to end with this. The hope of justice. The hope of justice, listen, listen. As we strive to seek God in all these ways, if we, if we, and I'm not saying we will, I'm not, I don't wanna be that bold to think that we'd actually obey the Bible, but if we would just obey what it says, if we do that, here's what's gonna happen. Here's gonna come really clear. We, we've been in church now for 16 years and we've been trying to do this. You're gonna find out that life is really complicated. People's stories are so complicated and almost no one fits in the stereotype you have of them in your mind. So life is complicated. We are really weak. We're really impatient. We're really quick to give up. Guilt is a terrible motivator. It's a terrible motivator. And the best justice we can achieve in this life is still severely limited. I mean, this is why God in all of this, he's our only hope. He is our only hope, his love for us, his Christ over us, his word in front of us, his spirit in us, his people around us, that's the only way to do it. That's the only way to do it. And listen, I know this is a lot. You're like, why'd I come to church on this Sunday? I just wanted to laugh and be told I'm loved and get out of here, right? I know it's a lot. But don't let, listen, the guilt you will inevitably feel overwhelm you and drive you. Please don't. You will, if you look at, how to look at the injustice in this world and not get overwhelmed by what to do and how could you even help? But here's what guilt will do. Guilt will make you impulsive and impatient. Guilt will make you impulsive and impatient because you'll wanna do something right now. I wanna solve like right now so I can be done with it. You'll wanna fix it in a moment. And it won't be because we understand justice or wanna know God in it. It'll be because we feel guilty. We wanna get rid of it because we're trying to atone for it. But what is the gospel you believe? You can't atone for sin. You can't get rid of guilt by your actions, your works. That's anti to the gospel we believe. Only Jesus can do that, and he's done it. Be motivated 
not by guilt, but by God's steadfast, never giving up, always present love for you through Jesus. Guilt will make you impulsive and impatient, but here's what love, when you believe God's love for you and how he's loved you, when you were on the margins, you were on the fringes, you were poor, you weren't grateful, you deserve nothing, and yet he came and sought you out, when you believe that for you, love will create resolve. Love will create long-suffering. Love will create compassion. Love will create empathy and listening to somebody else when you don't know what you're doing. Love will, will create thoughtfulness. Because justice will not be achieved in one action. We can't be a church who comes to join people who've been fighting for justice for 20 years and go, okay, so we almost done? It takes a long time, and honestly, we're just supposed to seek it. The command is to seek it, to do little bite sizes of accomplishing and handing it off to the next generation for them to take their turn. But it's our turn now, and God's love is what keeps us serving and striving towards justice, not the other way around, church. Your serving and striving towards justice does not make God love you. If that's the case, you'll give up. It's his love for you and the way he loves you that keeps motivating you to serve and strive towards justice. Be motivated by love, not guilt. And lastly, we have to always remember that the justice God's going to bring one day when Christ returns, the justice he's going to achieve, it's going to be better than anything you could ever work for here. I gotta read this text. I don't know a better way to end a sermon on justice than to where we're gonna go. Revelation 21.3, this is the last day. John speaking, he says, then I heard a loud voice from the throne. Look, look, God's dwelling is with humanity and he will live with them. And they will be his peoples, and God himself will be with them and will be their God, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more, and grief, crying, and pain will be no more, because the previous things have passed away. Then the one seated on the throne said, look, I'm making everything new. He also said, right, because these words are faithful and true. On that day, God is going to, with his own tender thumb, wipe away every tear from your eyes that injustice has caused in ways no one else can. On that day, he will right every wrong. On that day, there will be no more injustice because all of it will be properly paid for and punished, either in judgment in hell or on the cross with Christ. So the reason there's mourning, crying, and pain are gone, why? Because justice is done, because he accomplished it. But not only is he going to right wrongs in that day, he is going to make, what does he say? I'm making all things new. And here's what I want you to know. Justice in this life won't be able to do that. Because justice in this life, at best, it can punish wrongs, and at best, it can partially restore the good that was taken, but it can't bring it all the way back. 
You can punish a murderer, but you can't bring back the life that they took. You can punish the abuser, but you can't bring back the innocence they stole. You can lift up the poor, but you can't get rid of all poverty. You can heal the sick, but not get rid of all sickness. The justice we work towards here, we're called to it, but it still has its limits because there's still this longing in us for a good and for a hope and for a future and love that's deeper than that. But on that day, he just said, I'll make all things new. The promise is, and I want you to believe it, the promise is somehow, some way, I don't know how, but somehow, some way, he's going to restore what you lost. Somehow, some way, he will restore what was taken. The good that you, deep down in your heart, don't believe is even possible, he'll be able to do on that day. And the reason, the reason, though I don't know how he's gonna do it, the reason I know somehow, some way he'll be able to is because somehow, some way, Jesus himself went into evil, into injustice, into suffering, into death, and he came out even stronger. He came out indestructible. It's the empty tomb that's our hope that justice is going to come and one day all wrong and evil and injustice will be drowned and destroyed and done away with. It's the resurrection that keeps us pursuing justice because you can know even the smallest amount of effort won't be wasted in his kingdom because on that day, all that is good and beautiful and right and true will be firmly planted in the life and the love and the hope of the risen lamb. On that day, it's coming. On that day, Jesus will be there beautiful and bright, standing strong as king forever over his kingdom with no death, no abuse, no racism, no evil and we, his people, will be at his side, just and true. Every wound healed, every promise kept, every injustice undone. This is why the church works for justice, and this is why we always pray, come Lord Jesus, come quickly. Let's pray. Father, there is, there are times with you, God, where the amount that we have to process and think through and sit in is too much just to breeze into praying things we don't mean. And God, sometimes learning to be with you is sitting quiet with you, mourning with you, crying with you, hoping in you when nothing seems like it could ever change. Father, I know, I know, I know there are people and men and women in this room who still haven't really dealt with the things done to them. 
And God, I'm thankful that you're a safe place. I'm thankful that your posture to us is always towards mercy. Even as us, we can, maybe some of us feel our hearts hard towards what you have to say about justice because of fears we have or concerns we have and we're dismissing what your word says because of fear. And yet your posture towards us, God, is mercy. Because you're a father to us. We're your little kids trying to process through all the different things going on and you're patient and long-suffering, yet never yielding what you call us to because your character is that pure and perfect and good and trustworthy. God, I have been both a victim and a villain in this world. I've been wronged against, I've wronged others. I've been a part of injustice whether I realized it or not and I've done small steps of repentance and yet God, I feel how much further we have to go and God, we'll never get there if you're not with us. But God, would you change us as a people who think we know what we need, who think we know what our future is, God, we do not. So God, what we are is a people who trust Jesus. When we can't take another step, you can. When we can't believe another promise, you can. When we don't know how to stay steady, Jesus, you can. And every time we get around you, you have this strange way, Jesus, of both being tough and tender, of being near to us and calling us to hard things. God, make us that kind of church, this city, the weak, the marginalized, the oppressed, the overlooked in this city, God, they need your kingdom to advance through churches like us. God, even now, give us dreams and visions, not just of what kind of career we wanna have and kind of family we wanna raise, but the kind of justice we wanna seek. Because Jesus, you say, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you did it to me. So God, before we go do anything, help us right now sing and worship and praise and sit in the fact that you're our hope. You're our king.